Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Eat, Sleep, Work for Pete. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hope you enjoyed the last episode with Kim Scott and Tria Bryant. That was talking about diversity, actually, and just being a better ally. I think I got some lovely response to that. Lovely people uh, saying, you know, what a, a welcome episode it was to have such a, a sort of an in-depth discussion on it. So appreciate all the feedback for that. This week, I'm, I've been sort of sitting there. We've been reflecting on the way that world's, the world's gone remote over the last 12 months. And we're now we're getting to that zone of work where people really are thinking, is the rubber going to hit the road? Are firms really, when it comes down to it, really genuinely going to allow remote work to stick? And so I just wanted to to pick a few people's brains. Firstly, I've got a wonderful discussion with a features writer from The Economist called Callum Williams. And Callum wrote a full 11-page feature or alongside other writers, but he was the lead named writer in The Economist this week, talking about the future of work. Really captivating read. And I've given a link to it in the show notes, or you can pick it up on newsstands. And I just wanted to have a discussion with Callum. He's gone in depth on some of the the themes that we're exploring. Then secondly, I've got a discussion with Dan Murray-Serta. And Dan, you might well know Dan. He's he's a CEO, he runs a, a business, but he's, he's also the host of uh, the Secret Leader podcast, which is popular feature at the top of the business charts and his own business, Heights, which is a nutrition, a, a brain nutrition product. We have a really good discussion about three other articles that are in the news. So you might want to check out these. They're all in the show notes. Firstly, there was a Gallup article talking about what Gen Z workers want from their bosses. Just an interesting one if if people maybe are sort of reflecting on how the workforce is evolving and the expectations, then that's a, a nice piece there. Second one is a New York Times article that is a first-person testimony of someone who was really uh, subjected to something that we're just reading too often about big firms. And I guess it's just the fact that big firms are in the news, but it was someone who was um, approached by her boss and he started sexually harassing her. And the the byline of the article is, I've learned never to treat my work like a family again. And then the, finally, there's an article, which is a, a nice one from the conversation, which is suggesting that the, the mental fatigue that I think a lot of us have been experiencing, it appears to be quickly rectified by being in contact with people. So me and Dan talk about those articles. If you are interested in those articles, if you're interested in, in what we discussed today, all of it as ever, is featured in the weekly newsletter. The newsletter, Make Work Better, goes out each week at the start of the week, normally on Tuesdays, and has links like these or articles. If you are interested in improving your own workplace, it's a really good place to, to get the, the inside line of what's happening. I think especially right now, when firms are debating what their work looks like and how's that actually going to work, it's a, a really critical time to be checked in on what other firms are doing. So you can get that again. That's at the top of the show notes. 
Okay, so let's jump into the discussions. First up is my discussion with Callum Williams, and he's a special a senior features writer at The Economist. Here's Callum. Callum, brilliant report that you had published in The Economist a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the, the way I read your report is that it's quite an optimistic take on how the way that work is evolving and how we shouldn't necessarily feel fearful for what's to come next. Am I reading that yes, right? Yes, you are. Well, th- firstly, th- thank you for having me on the on the show. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, that's completely right. I mean, my perception kind of going into doing the research for the report is that there's a lot of pessimism about the world of work and there, and there has been really as long as I can remember. People are concerned about various aspects of working life. Some people say that a lot of jobs are just completely pointless or you know, there's that book by J- David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs, which became a bestseller. There's, you know, perennial concerns about the amount of power people have in the workplace and whether their work is meaningful. And, and so part of the report really was to kind of actually try and interrogate those those beliefs with with data and with analysis and, and, and see if it was see if it was true. And I think one of the sort of big things that came out from the report is it's not it's absolutely not saying that, you know, all jobs are perfect. Absolutely not saying that. But what it is saying is that really, as long as capitalism has existed, you know, 250 years, roughly, people have had concerns about the world of work. It's nothing new. But that actually, the world of work that existed just before the pandemic, so 2018, 2019, was actually working pretty well. A lot of the kind of perceptions about the world of work, at least before the pandemic, were just completely wrong. Go on. So how was the world of work working so well initially? So I think when, I mean, the sort of classic example that politicians uh, back in 2019 would, would draw on was, was to say unemployment's low. And a lot of people said, yeah, OK, fine, unemployment's low. But that you know, doesn't account for the fact that loads of people are just have dropped out of the labour force completely, given up looking for work or they're in part time jobs or they're in jobs that don't pay enough. Or actually, if you look at this, if you look at the survey data on, on, on people's experience of work, things like, for instance, Gallup, that big American pollster has a has a long running survey on this if you look at things like how much money people are paid how much they enjoy their work how how much people think they are going to get promoted how much job security people have how much satisfaction they get from their job actually that was going up pretty rapidly year after year after year going up throughout the 2000s and then and then you know then you have a dip in the in the in the, in the crisis of 10 years ago which is what you'd expect but then reaching basically all-time highs in in 2019 you have wages that are growing pretty rapidly across the income spectrum in america interestingly enough by the time the pandemic hit wages for the people at the bottom of the labor market who are earning the the smallest pay packets were growing the fastest so they were catching up with people above them if you look at things like people who have typically found it more difficult to find jobs. So it's a, it's a long problem with the American labour market that the black unemployment rate has been higher than the white one, but the black unemployment rate was way, way down. So, you know, this was, a, this was something that was kind of benefiting all people. When you said to people, well, do you like what you do? And it, I think it's a perception that often comes from like writers, journalists, people who are kind of self-appointed intellectuals and gurus on the world of work, that a lot of the jobs that exist in the modern labor market are just rubbish. They're uh, the service sector jobs that are not meaningful. But actually, there wasn't really much evidence of that. People actually were getting a lot of pleasure from doing what they it, it does seem to be internationally conflicted, though, doesn't it? If you look at those engagement numbers that Gallup report, Gallup's engagement is much higher in the US than it is across the whole of Europe, actually. And, you know, it, it always begs an enigma for me. Is that because there's an existential threat that if you lose your job in America, you lose your health care? And so as a consequence of that, the sense of peril creates this sense of commitment to it. And I don't know the answer on that. It's, a, it's an intriguing nuance in the stats. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. I haven't, you know, I haven't thought of that particular answer. I mean, I, I suppose I would wonder about the theory of your point. You could argue it the other way and say that someone who is scared of losing their job because they're going to lose healthcare isn't actually going to feel particularly engaged or feel that they're enjoying their job. They're just kind of clinging on for dear life, and that's not a particularly enjoyable experience. I mean, it's, a, it, 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 it's a good question. I mean, t- I mean, typically what happens, particularly in the US debate, and you see this all the time with the new administration, particularly Biden, there is this perception, I think, that the jobs of the 50s and 60s were just kind of better all round. You know, the classic example, I think, would be like unionised car manufacturing workers in somewhere like Detroit, Michigan, place like that. And it's a, it's a sort of a more, it's a kind of slightly vague and amorphous uh, notion, but this idea that they were the good jobs. They were jobs that paid well, they were stable, they were like respectable, they had dignity. And then they all went away and what's left, you know, is, is worse. But if you actually go back to the debates, you know, 
if there were podcasts in the 1950s, they would have been talking about how working in a unionized car factory is is, is rubbish, is terrible. There were loads of of, of you know, social scientists and journalists who were concerned about uh, the plight of these poor unionized car factory workers. And there was this thing that emerged at the end of the 60s called blue collar blues. Now, the idea in the 21st century of talking about blue collar blues seems kind of kind of mad because blue collar, like proper blue collar jobs are like what all politicians want. But actually, back then there was, you know, huge satisfaction, dissatisfaction. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really complex picture, basically. Okay, so, so you're talking about the, the context that we had, that we we're broadly in a good trend anyway already. So what is it, what impact has the changes of the last 12 months had? You, you mentioned that I think it was a really tiny single digit figure of people working from home previously, and it went to over 60% of workers, I think you mentioned. Talk me through some of the numbers. What what do we expect is going to stick? What changed? Okay, so I guess in, when you're thinking about the pandemic, the, the argument that the report tries to make is that you've got to think of it in kind of two stages. There's the first stage, which is sort of the past year. And the past year, on the whole, has been terrible, like un- unbelievably terrible. You know, the, the 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 job loss that you saw, particularly concentrated in March and April of, of last year, was was just far and away larger than what we saw in the in the recession a decade ago. You know, it was just, a, just an astonishingly large shock. Um, and then, of course, you know, for you know, some some people did move uh, to working at home, uh, which which is you know one of those kind of big things. But of course, a number of people, often in some countries, a very large chunk of people, kind of had to carry on working and didn't have appropriate protection and and uh, all that kind of stuff. And you can see it in the figures that you know the essential workers, the frontline workers, the key workers, have in most countries died in in large numbers, larger numbers than average. So it's been a kind of absolute catastrophe in that sense. But the, the second part that the report argues is that what the what it will do is, is is actually, at least in the medium term, kind of improve the world of work. So the working from home point is is one you just mentioned, and it went from so it's actually working hours. It was five percent of working hours in America before the pandemic were done at home, up to sixty percent of working hours in kind of May, I think it was May of twenty twenty. The the evidence on working from home is not that it's perfect, it doesn't suit everyone, but on average people most studies that I've seen show are, are more productive, they're happier, they have more of a sense of work life balance, even if the dividing line between work and life is more difficult because it's harder to know when your day properly begins and properly ends. I think there is some massive benefits of the shift of working from home, sort of massive knock-on benefits. One that we talk about in the report is is management. Now, obviously, you know, for most people who have managers of one sort or another, the quality of that manager kind of matters quite a lot for your well-being and your sense of happiness and your productivity at work. And the evidence suggests that what remote work has done is it's forced managers to be better, basically. And there's actually pretty good, you know, data on this. Um, and the reason why that is, is because when people were in an office all together in an office, like, you know, a year and a half ago, managers could could kind of just about get away with being bad communicators. Because as long as you told someone that something was happening, then you could kind of assume that everyone else would find out eventually because everyone's in an office. And you didn't really need to be quite so intentional about kind of telling people stuff and keeping people in the loop. Whereas now you have to be pretty focused on doing this, like intentional, making sure everybody knows because you don't have the office anymore. And so you can see it in the data that people feel more engaged with their manager, feel more talked to and communicated with and that kind of thing. So that's so that's great. I think kind of more broadly, though, there's a, I mean, the other thing that we maybe we'll get to in a minute is the question of, you know, job killing robots. And there was a, there was, there has, there is a concern, I would say, among most, again, most of these kind of future of work gurus that the pandemic is going to lead to robots taking over. And you do see examples of this, but I don't think that's going to happen. So that's another kind of big, good thing. So I want, I want to come to automation in a second, because that was probably the thing that was in people, the back of people's minds before the last 12 months. And it's kind of disappeared. Um, but I'm really interested in your take, because actually, firstly, you talk in your report about the separation between a world that could do its work in its pajamas and uh, the, the the rest of the workforce who you need to go out there and and you mentioned specifically these these often an ethnic profile to this these these a class profile yeah. to this but in addition yeah. to that we've seen a lot of women leave the workforce and so broadly you would 
both of those things, I would say, are grounds for us to say, man, this has not been a proud 12 months. This has not been something progressive. And unless you're presuming that we're going to sort of bounce back from this into something that somehow has got a more equitable uh, payoff after it, it's just, you know, just to put that part of the discussion to bed, it just, I'm impressed with your optimism because this, there's, there's a reading of the stats that certainly aren't opt- optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. The point about essential workers is is obviously a really important one. The male-female split is, is is interesting. This recession was unusual. You know, some people are calling it a she session because it was one of the only recessions that we've seen recently where the female unemployment rate has gone up by more than the male one. And that's really because women tend to be concentrated in the kind of like high contact intensive sectors that have been really smashed by the pandemic. So like restaurants and that and that not obviously not just restaurants but that's just one example actually if you look at if you you know if you look at what's happened in the in the most recent data so the u.s had its big monthly jobs report a few days ago the he session it's, it's not over but yeah. women are no longer disproportionately affected relative to men men are now the ones who once again are, are facing relatively higher unemployment than women so you know there's there's certain things that have improved faster and i think i think it's easy to forget actually if you take yourself back to where we were in march and and april may and june of last year you had some very respectable organizations who were you know genuinely concerned that this was really the end of end of the road for a lot of people's careers you know you had some of the federal reserve bank economists coming out in in march and saying that the us unemployment rate was going to go up to about 30% it went to 15% which is still incredibly high but it's just not 30% and then in june you had the the oecd which is a sort of you know very respectable think tank based in paris which was saying that unemployment was going to carry on climbing if we had a second wave of infections it was going to come down really slowly and actually that that hasn't happened in basically no country has that happened things have got better much much faster than people had thought that is not to say that everything's okay because it it isn't but things have got better a lot faster than people thought and i think there's one crucial other point again this is a medium-term thing and you're right there will have to be a bit of like compensation over the next few years to make up for the losses that have taken place in the past year, but policymakers, particularly in America, they're so aware of the benefits of having a strong labour market, and they talk about it much more than they used to. After the financial crisis a decade ago, the number one priority, really in the US and definitely in Europe, was get the deficit down, cut the public debt, balance the fiscal books. Doesn't really matter if unemployment's high, because the number one priority is getting the deficit down. And so what you had in both America and Europe was pretty high unemployment for a long time a long, long time, many years, that isn't going to happen again this time because policymakers are aware that getting people into work has massive benefits and they're basically going to do what it takes to, to get the unemployment rate down. And you see this from central bankers, you see this from, from finance ministers. And so, you know, that leads me to be more optimistic than I think most people are. Which brings us on to the final part of your report, which is, I, I guess, the consideration of the thing that was definitely in everyone's reading list or it was it was something that we were all thinking about which was this threat of the robots and this threat of general ai or this the threat of automation and it's really disappeared from everyone's radar for the last 12 months give us your take what's your immediate threat of of automation on the workforce so you're right it has gone away i think that's because people in a way have been focused on all the other stuff we've been we've been talking about so it's sort of fair enough but i mean i've seen lots of newspaper articles and stuff online about various businesses that have brought in robots in, over the past few months to try and reduce the risk of infection. So, my, you know, you might go to a supermarket and rather than someone telling you whether it's safe to go in or not, there might be like an automated like traffic light system or, you know, there's loads of examples of that. And so this has led to this fear. And this is a fear that is expressed by a lot of kind of automation people, that this is the moment yeah. when you know, the machines are going to take all our jobs because everything's in flux. People are thinking of new ways of doing things. The historical record shows that most automation takes place just after recessions. And of course, this is a massive recession. So like it stands to reason that, you know, you'd get automation. The argument that I'm trying to make in the report is to basically say, okay, let's see if there's any evidence of automation taking place. And it's one of these weird things because automation is one of those discussions that everyone likes to have. But no one really bothers to measure whether it's actually happening. People just say it's happening, but don't actually know if it's happening. 
and don't even bother to find out because it's easy just to be like, oh, robots are coming and taking all our jobs rather than actually trying to work out whether it's actually happening or not. The report looks into this and finds actually that there's not really any evidence for it happening yet. I think there's good reason to expect that it won't happen as fast as people think. I mean, I had a, I had a couple of very interesting conversations with some people who are basically, their job is to help companies automate stuff. And I said to them, so what's going to, you know, what's going to happen with all, you know, you automating all these processes? And they were like, oh, you know, it's, it, we'd like to do it, but it's tricky because we're, this person I was speaking to was based in, you know, in America. And she was saying, you know, well, basically to automate something, I've got to travel. I've got to travel to the factory and go inside the building and talk with people for, for, for days and days and like work out exactly which little tiny, tiny process that's currently done by a person is going to be done by a machine. And that's actually a really difficult process. It's really difficult if you are trying to do that in person, but it's basically impossible if you're trying to do it by Zoom. And so she was like, well, actually, my job's become a lot more difficult. You know, at some point, the travel restrictions are going to be lifted, but it's still going to be less than it was. And so, you know, she just that's one reason to expect, I think, why this kind of wave of automation might not be quite as big as right. people think. Although... When travel's lifted again, maybe these are all this pent-up demand of people dashing to the robot factories. I could be proven wrong. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Thank you to Callum. You can see Callum's report on work. It's in the show notes, or you can uh, you can find it on newsstands right now. Right now, let's jump into my discussion with CEO and podcaster Dan Murray Serta. Dan, like I say, runs the podcast the secret leader. He also runs his own startup, Heights. So we're going to go in and the three articles we're going to be discussing are in the show notes. But firstly, I wanted to get a perspective of what Dan's business was doing and and what was it it like to be a leader of a startup right now. Here's Dan. Dan, thank you for joining us. So I wanted someone who had a first-hand perspective as a boss, as as someone who chats to leaders all the time. So uh, I I wanted to to get your take. Firstly, how's pandemic and lockdown suiting your business and and how has it changed work for you? It's a good question because I've got, uh, you know, two businesses, obviously one is uh, Secret Leaders, which is how we connected. And, uh, you know, that's a media business. And um, I'd actually bootstrapped that and ended up hiring a team there during the pandemic because um, I used to do all my recordings in a studio. And then as soon as I couldn't do that, and I was like, well, it's going to be Zoom. And actually that sort of opens the scope of of who I could interview and how I could do it. Um, it sort of opened up my eyes to uh, the potential growth of that opportunity. So I started hiring a team. So I've never had a team in that before. And so it's been quite interesting managing that. And then Heights, which is my real day job, uh, I launched January the 6th, 2020. And the first person I ever hired was in March. And I have still not met most of my team ever. Uh, And actually, a lot of them don't even live in the UK. So it's been a niche situation and I'm sure we'll come on to it but the f- most frustrating part is I never planned to ho- run a remote team ever and I had an office in Soho ready for the team that we were hiring all the way up until September that's how long it took us to figure out whether or not we were going to do it did you pay rent on it yeah did you yeah so and what you've ditched it now yeah we had it all the way from January to September and in the end you know in in the end you, you start to ask questions to yourself such as um if this is ongoing, I mean, first you start a culture, right? So this isn't about shifting a culture from an office-based culture to a remote culture. This is starting a culture in a pandemic where no one really knows the answer of what's going to go on and how long it's going to be. So you're starting in an uncertain time. We have an office there that was costing us a lot of money. And the more and more we were doing interviews to hire people, the more and more the question came up, which is, is the most important thing about this person competency, whether or not they can get to London? Like, at what point does that become a question not worth asking anymore? Um, it was sort of at that time, you know, when we're like, God, there's, you know, a great example is we ended up hiring a head of growth in Rotterdam. Uh, we just never, she'd never, she never, ever, ever would have got through our thing, like because she was in Rotterdam and we were interviewing people from the UK. They can get to London. How did you find her? Uh, through a recruiter. And this is the thing, right. like it, like genuinely through a recruiter, because we've been looking for a head of growth for a few months and hadn't found anyone that we thought was good enough. Um, and, you know, 
the role the role description changed from find us a head of growth that you know is around the London area X Y Z to find us the best head of growth you possibly can, and then the the scope changing to anywhere led to applications from everywhere. And when we got through the interview process, she was the best. She happened to be in Rotterdam, and it was so interesting taking that factor completely out of the mix to just hire the best person. And tell me this then. So how are you thinking? How many people have you got now? Or roughly how many people have you got? Yeah. So now we've got 14. So we've gone from zero to 14 in a year. So you've got a reasonable size. And when it comes then to thinking about the three months ahead, the six months ahead, the 12 months ahead, have you thought about how you're going to create a cohesive culture amongst those people? Yes, a lot. Um, We're really deliberate. So it's worth saying that, you know, it's not my first rodeo in building a company. And uh, one of the the largest company that I built, which had uh, 75 employees, which failed. Um, I think one of the main reasons it failed was not defining culture and values well enough. I was young. It grew super fast. We raised millions of pounds in venture capital. Um, it just grew, grew, grew. We had millions of, you know, millions of users piling onto a, a consumer like mobile platform quickly. And I was young and you don't really know what you're doing and not enough time spent on the hard things like values, what other people think are the soft things, but the hard things. And so that flows into then your interview processes because you start hiring maybe the best person for the job, but not the best person for the company. And, you know, all of these things end up um, compounding. And so in reality, like this time around, when I was starting Heights, I was really deliberate about the values to the point where before me and my business partner ever had uh, a business plan or an idea of what company we were building, we defined our values first. So we have this value sheet and an interview questionnaire for anyone that we were going to hire based on the values before we had a company name or any idea of what we were doing. Give us a sense of some of them because I'm always intrigued with this. I, um, mm. uh, I, I quite often go into businesses. I, I did something with for a group of advertising agencies a few weeks ago. And uh, the really interesting thing is that, you know, they couldn't recognize the conflict that there was about 40 people on this call. And they all said that their people was their secret weapon and their culture was the thing that defined them. And so the Im- immediate question I always ask when people say that is to say, wonderful, can you tell me the specifics of your recruitment process? Because I'm intrigued. If, if your people, if the culture there is different to everywhere else, you must have a very specific way of singling out people who aren't suited to you. And they always, they always describe a recruitment process that is very casual. It's either we hire people we like, which is just about the worst way to get any sort of diversity. Or they, they've got a very amateurish program. Yeah, you know, we, we sort of, we know, we know the talents we're looking for. And, and so you sound like you've tried to specify it. How have you set about doing it? Yeah, so uh, it's worth saying that, you know, we've got three values that we identified at the start and uh, they actually have been updated. We, we updated them last month with our team because we were like, listen, just because these are the values that we had before anyone joined, we're now a founding team. And so let's work on these together. Do we still think that they should be our values? Do you think we should evolve them? And so they've changed a little bit. And now we've got managers who are hiring people in their team. So these things have updated a bit. But just to give you um, an idea of our, um, of, well, I'll give you one of our values that's relevant for us was keep a sense of humor and humility. Um, and the reason for that is because startups can be very stressful and you can take yourself very seriously. So keeping a sense of humor is really important. We like to have fun. Um, you do end up working pretty hard. And if you lose a sense of like just having a lol, um, it can be a bit miserable. And then the humility thing, I think, is the most single most important thing to identify in a growth mindset, like full stop. Because if you lack humility and you think you're God's gift to anything, um, you can overhire, you can over-index on people with great skills, but not a lot of good teamwork ethic. So... That's like the value. And then in the interviews, for example, you know, it will be questions that are specifically related to that. So just to give you an idea of our interview process, the first interview um, is not with either Joel or I, it's with a colleague of ours. um, And it's a 30 minute values call. 
and has nothing to do with anything at all to do with the company, the job, the role, or anything. Um, but it involves questions like, tell me about a time you were responsible for a project that, did, that didn't go to plan or it failed, and you had to report into your manager or team. How did you go about it? How did you take responsibility for it? Or when was the last time you realized you were wrong and changed your mind about something? Or how do you build relationships with colleagues? Share an example when this has gone well. Share an example where it's gone badly. You know, these are like very specific questions that are really like top of the funnel, mostly about identifying a past experience that you have to give some detail to that would just give a flavor of how that person thinks related to those values. So we set up like systematic um you know, ways of making sure in our interview process now, for example, uh, like usually someone coming in will have to meet three or four different members of the team and will highlight the same questions throughout the interview process that all candidates have to answer so that we can score them out of 10 on those. And they aren't anything to do with how good you are at that role. That's for the manager to assess fit. But culturally, if you're looking for the whole team to buy into values, you need the team to get together and decide on how that person is assessing values. And that's been working extremely well for us. So to come back to your question, I know there's a slight diversion, but to come back to your question, um, I think what I've learned is uh, time zone, time zone is important. Like, so there is also like a thing, you know, got to be fairly reasonable. So hiring someone in New York is very different to hiring someone in LA. Um, you can just about make it work for, for now in a small team in New York, but LA would just be a bit too disruptive, for example. So we still do have some logical limitations. And actually everyone that we've hired so far is in Europe or the Middle East. So the time zone thing hasn't been too bad. Every Friday, um, we do a team catch up, obviously, for an hour. But every other Friday, we do one just on values. So like literally just an hour spent on values. It could be fun. It could be serious. It kind of depends what the value is that's, that the team is organizing. but. I, you know, I think that these things are, if you're really deliberate about them and you have to literally make time in the calendar as the boss to say, this is just as important as our work, um, which is the only real way of demonstrating to a team that it's important, um, then I think it's fine. And I've been learning as much as anyone has how to uh, evolve a culture in a remote or potentially mixed remote um, environment. And, uh, and there's just so many tools out there, you know, I think a lot can be made of the limitations, but I try to look at it in a completely different way, which is, you know, very Eckhart Tolle, you know, dealing with reality on reality's terms. This is reality currently. I, I so, used to work with a governor who, uh, yes and no, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm given a cautious acceptance. I used to work with a governor who, in our weekly team meeting, made us spend half an hour talking about values. And there's a strange thing about sort of talking about something that makes it veer into the theoretical and it was excruciating. Mm. We used to dread it. 100%. As we had such a buzzing culture in this environment, but the half an hour we used to spend each week talking about values was excruciating. So yes and no, I can definitely see the the, the benefit of doing it. It's just about the execution, but it's it, firstly, you know, it's, well, this it is sounds what I was like going to say. Up. It's about the behaviours. Yeah. No, no, you're spot on. This is exactly what we used to get wrong in my last company. We would talk about the values. It doesn't work. You have to introduce the values and then you have to embed them in your company. Mm. And the way that we've done it is we've got different teams set up for each value and their job is to embed it into our culture the way that they see fit. So tell us, so not to talk about doing it. So tell us what's yeah. coming next. Will you will you get that office back, or will you get everyone a WeWork contract? Or obviously, you've got people distributed uh, so around. A, will you be getting people together on a quarterly basis? What's your plan? Yeah, I'm 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 very famous in in my company for uh, hosting the record number of failed retreats attempted. Um, I'm really big on I've gone I've gone really hard on setting up the most awesome, amazing, fun, exciting retreat ever, and I've had to cancel three so far. Uh, so I've learned I've learned to maybe not go quite so hard in. Um, there's a really brilliant company called Hubble H U B B L E that I've signed the whole team up to. Uh, they basically got all the workspaces around London, but also the UK, some in Paris, some around Europe. And you just get the whole team credits. And why that's valuable is because it means that some of the team, so one of my colleagues, for example, has a baby and he literally like drives him mad, obviously being in the in at home all day is quite distracting for him. He can go to a local co-working space. For him, that's second home in Shoreditch. So they're all very nice ones, right? They're WeWorks, they're everything. They've, they've got a whole marketplace of all of them. Um, and he can work locally on his own every day in the one that he wants to. But 
as a team, if we want to go to a different one every single week, I can set that up as well. And it's all like managed on the platform. So for me, that's a lot easier than just picking one co-working space for the moment, right? Whilst I'm trying to jigsaw this stuff together. And I think this is actually the reality, which is it's about uncertainty. So whilst things aren't that certain, I'll tell you one thing that is certain as the boss is your costs. So being locked into an office between January to September almost bankrupted us. It was difficult because, you know, it was a cost. No one had seen this office except for me and my business partner. So that's painful. Um, and that's a scar that you remember. And so you think, well, actually, I'd rather pay extra for the flexibility of being able to work around this market. And I think that's it. I think if you are running a company and you're hiring and you're growing or shrinking, whatever it might be in this environment, having the flexibility is actually, in my opinion, um, a tax worth paying for. It's really interesting, actually, because there was a fantastic article in the New York Times. We're going to go through some articles uh, shortly. But there was a fantastic article in the New York Times last week uh, talking about how um, how the demand for commercial real estate is at a 30-year low. And to some extent, the the only way you can look at that, and, and it's a real buyer's market in Manhattan at the moment, the US cities are seeing a lot of a diaspora of people sort of um, – or an exodus of, of people uh, sort of leaving San Francisco, leaving New York. Um, so th- the only way you can view that in aggregate is to feel, look, it feels like there is going to be a, a big fall in the demand for commercial property. And a 2008-style property collapse isn't impossible. If a lot of people do what you do, thinking we just don't need an, an office space, it's just going to be intriguing. You know, I think we've seen talk of some of the big firms needing a smaller footprint. But if there's a lot of startup firms who say we don't need an office at all, it is going to fundamentally change demand for office space in in all manner of places, I think. So this is where, and I actually, it's worth saying, like I am big into um, office spaces only to the point where I was an investor in one of them. I've got friends who run another one. Um, so like, I'm always curious about this space and actually, you know, they just find different commercial tenants, right? So, you know, you look at the Twitters, the Pinterest and the Googles who are like, right, we're sacking off our, our global HQs left, right and center. And, uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that suddenly they are probably going to be paying a lot of money in these co-working spaces to provide rooms and spaces for their colleagues to go and work productively because not everyone wants that. So I think the big question is right, like who fills the HQs? In my opinion, anyway, I don't know enough about the global market here, but you know, who fills the HQs in in London's and San Francisco's and New York's? Because if those HQs empty up a little bit, uh, you know, realistically, those colleagues are going to go and work in their local WeWorks and places like that. I actually think you know, if I was a serious investor, I'd probably be investing quite heavily into WeWork right now. I actually think it's a amazing time to be WeWork. And I think that the idea that it's not is probably misunderstanding the value of startup clients in the first place, right? We're going to look at three articles here because I was interested in your perspective on some of these things. So these, like the challenge right now is that we've got all these emergent trends. The first article we've got is this, um, is this Gallup are the, the experts in, in auditing the workplace. And they've come out and sort of given this report on what Gen Z's are one. And look, none of this is a surprise, but I think one of the interesting things we're really struck by uh, is – um, Gen Z seem to be far more active and uh, politically conscious, sort of ethically conscious, than we've maybe sort of witnessed emergent workers before. And so, this Gallup report says that uh, Gen Zs are looking for, obviously. Uh, employers who care about their well-being, but uh, employers who want their uh, they, they're looking for employers to be ethical, and uh, they're they're also looking for their leaders to be transparent. I was just interested in your your take on this. You know, is this anything we didn't already know? Gallup are obviously the experts on giving us a perspective on the workforce in aggregate. So I was just interested in your take on your experience. Firstly, you know, what's the profile of your own workers? Are you seeing any difference in maybe newer entrants to the workforce? Yeah, I mean, my entire workforce in fairness is is millennial and, and Gen Z. Um, and the, 
I mean, look, the reality is it, it's kind of hard to see this, uh, to say this stuff, like when you're like in a, in your own vacuum, so to speak. So, you know, at Heights, we're a B Corp anyway. So, you know, what we do is, you know, we focus around sustainability and all of those types of things. So, you know, you talk about Gen Zs, like what do they look for? They look for, you know, oh, well, often, and certainly the Gallup report says so as well, right? They look for uh, companies with a sense of purpose and mission and, and ethics and sustainability. And, you know, the B Corp is only one way of executing that. It's like essentially a roadmap towards how to execute those things. But ultimately, if that's, you know, your stamp on the world, it just clearly demonstrates to people coming into the business that you've got this wider purpose that they can work towards. So I think that that is something that, you know, hasn't been a huge issue for us, Um I do think that, uh, you know, I always, I, I, you know, I'm a millennial myself and I always think, you know, on my own experience in the workplace, I did end up leaving my job in advertising, um, for lack of sense of purpose and, you know, went to start and become an entrepreneur. And my dad used to take the mick out of me because, you know, he finds it so bonkers that I would leave a job because of lack of purpose. It was so alien to him. He ran the same company from the age of 17 all the way up until when he died at, you know, 57. And was just, you know, his purpose is feeding his family and having a job. And, you know, it's like completely different mindset. And now I had no sense of appreciation whatsoever for just having a job. It was never enough for me. So even at a millennial point of view, you know, that wasn't enough. I needed this wider purpose and the agency I was working at didn't have a wider purpose. And now we all use the word purpose everywhere, don't we? Yeah, we do. And and that's why I'm so intrigued with it. One of the things I'm, I'm writing something at the moment, I'm sort of, one of the things that I'm really intrigued about is that where purpose starts and identity begins is, is purpose just the way for us to forge our own personal identity that, that here's my concern with I'm immersed in, in all of this research at the moment but one of the things that I've noticed is and you sort of hinted it there a lot of firms misappropriate the word purpose and you know with the best will in the world the the way that your dad described purpose there was it was a very vivid notion that his objective in life was to feed his family and to be responsible for for raising his children you could, that's a vivid sense of purpose when you're working at a company making paper towels you know and they've they've evolved their purpose to be slightly more complicated and i don't think it's got the same motivating factor for an individual as your dad's sense of purpose had for him and so i'm just intrigued you know actually your dad's sense of purpose wherever he was working was a really vivid part of his identity I am going to provide for these people. You know, that's my response. It's a really vivid, it's sort of a visceral sense. And quite often firms, I've been at so many conferences where someone has said, you know, we're doing a session next on purpose. And what someone stands up and talks about, I'm not convinced that any of their workers care about that purpose. I'm just, you know, just an interesting difference between when purpose is really intensely felt and when it's just something we're told we're meant to feel. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's hard. Like, I think it's challenging. You know, I hear people all the time. I've got lots of uh, friends who run companies and they struggle with that purpose piece inside their organizations, you know, because they're running a, you know, a B2B software company. Like how much purpose can you really instill in something like that can be quite difficult. And I suppose, again, with heights, you know, we are lucky because, you know, we, 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 define our category as brain care, right? So suddenly you're talking, you know, you're asking employees, like who doesn't care about people taking care of their brain? Like ultimately in society, our brains are an afterthought. People do neglect them and there's a mental health epidemic. We're here to do something about that, right? So, you know, our, our literally our purpose at Heights is to help you do more of what you want for longer in your life by making brain care simple. That's like our purpose. And it, it's easy to get behind that because it's a bit like, it'd be weird not to be, if that makes sense, right? And I think mm. it's like that for a lot of wealth, uh, health and wellness companies in general, where there's a objective of what you're trying to achieve in society. It sort of flows a bit more comfortably. When you are selling paper clips or stationery or towels, like you say, you know, how do you really achieve that without sounding silly? I actually did come across a really lovely statement. Again, I don't know who said it, but it was that your passion is for you and your purpose is for others. 
And I think that's quite nice because a lot of debate on what passion is mm. and what purpose mm. is and all that stuff. And I think that's that really like that resonated. And I think it's a nice framework to look through what you're running at. Is it a passion or is it a purpose? Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. While we're on the subject, so we the first article we looked at was the the Gallup survey about millennials, and I guess that makes a nice contrast to the next article, which is uh, again it's in the show notes if people want to read it, which is this New York Times article about a worker at Google, and in fact the the pull quote that they used for the article was I learned the hard way that no publicly traded company is a family, but it's specifically about it's it's about someone at Google who um, I think despite all of the projected ethics and and you know they, they probably sort of defined that whole era of do no evil and defining that business was going to be different we just see this persistent problem of badly trained managers sexually harassing workers at these young firms and this is this is another example of it where a young worker found her career upended because a manager was sexually harassing her. Um, people make the mistake of thinking that HR is on the employee side, where actually HR is is the company's attempt to, to mitigate legal risk. And so what happened was she went to HR with it and HR effectively defended the company. And it's just, you know, for me, it was an interesting contrast to the Gallup article because the Gallup article is all about this is what matters and the uh, the New York Times Google article is this is the reality of quite often what happens. I, I wondered if you'd got a, a an interesting it was a, a good article I thought just for yeah. I guess it's slightly dystopian sad article yeah it really is yeah it's a sad article I you know I <laughs> pleased to say not an experience I've had to concern myself out on either side um, of that equation. Um, and, you know, I guess, again, speaking about it from a, by the way, I'm not like a hardcore proponent whatsoever of of remote working versus office working. In fact, you know, I, as we mentioned before, we were going live, you know, I love people and I, it's my natural environment to be around people. But I suppose there's one benefit, right, to remote working, which is there would certainly be less of these scenarios playing out um, and, and less of that anxiety around, you know, so-called professionalism. Um, and where the line lies, it'd be super odd to find yourself in these circumstances over Zoom calls, let's say that much. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely like that side to it. Um, but from a, you know, from an HR point of view, uh, that article particularly is a refreshing reminder, like you say, the H- whose side HR departments are on and who they're paid by. Like you say, I think depressing is the right word for it. it was um it was I mean it was look it was an interesting window into the the life of privilege that people in some of these tech firms live, but you know how it's punctuated. Just really simple things where it, it just seems like the manager of the person concerned was never told the manager was twenty six. Was the manager was just never given training that this isn't college, that this isn't like, you know, you're not in school now, you've got a responsibility not to hit on people. It just, it just seems, you know, an illustration that quite often these things, as you said before, you know, you, you talked about having to be explicit about creating your values. A lot of the firms just don't set about trying to do that to try and orientate people to um, a code of conduct, a set of values to to employees. Really, it's quite sad. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it is. But you know, also what a behemoth Google is, right? I mean, I think not not to excuse any of that behaviour, but it is just so fascinating, isn't it? When you actually look at it in a broader sense of, um, and you know, very brave of her to come out. And there's, there have been a few of these things with Google from time to time, and God knows how many others there aren't that just aren't spoken about. But if you look at it almost as the size of a population, like how many people work at Google and, you know, proportionally how much they probably do right to actually have that few complaints about it. I say don't know because she might be one of many and the only one brave enough to come forward. But anyone building a business, I think, can also relate to how phenomenal it must be, the structural intelligence to try and put together culture at that scale and get it mostly right. It's hard work, hard work. Absolutely. And the final one, uh, as you're sort of, as you you work in the space of of mental 
well-being and and you know uh mental sustenance i i picked this article here which was an article saying that lockdown mental fatigue is rapidly reversed by social contact and i guess i was just i was interested you know as we're just starting to emerge from the layers of of lockdown and and i think people are trying to get their heads around exactly what will happen next it's really difficult for a lot of people you know you're in a position where you've never had people in the office a lot of other firms are thinking you know maybe it would be easy if we just went back to 5 days a week in the office and i think you know especially because people are feeling so frazzled by the the situation that they're in then you know some degree of reversion doesn't feel like it will be a backward step. Um, so firstly, the article, again, in the show notes, but the article was a, just a, a good reminder that um, that a lot of us are um, probably going to hopefully see some some benefits of returning to some degree of, of being around people. And when we were chatting before that you said, uh, you, you said something really interesting, which was that, you know, I think either you or someone you'd spoken to had had some experience of being around lots of people recently and found it far more exhausting than they remembered. And I think, you know, that's to some extent what we might be witnessing that we're, we're going to have a little bit of stabilizer wheels on as we get back into the melee of being around other people. Definitely. And I'll just say, you know, the professional caveat here is I'm not an official mental health professional or psychiatrist or nutritionist or doctor or any of those things, but um, my business heights was literally started by reading science papers about the brain. And I've written a newsletter on that for two years straight every week and never missed a beat. So I've read a lot and I've interviewed a lot of people about it. And so I, I, I learn what the science says and it all stands to reason. So the brain is plastic, right? Or referred to as plastic, not literally plastic, but so this idea of neuroplasticity. So it literally will mold into your circumstance and your environment. So when you choose that life you want to have, if you choose to be an outdoorsy person or an indoorsy person, you could make another choice tomorrow and you'd have to work towards it, but ultimately your brain will develop the way that you design it and you define it. And so in lockdown, um, people who, like myself, would have really loved being around people in offices, engaging, going out at night, going to events, going to conferences, really like chatting, meeting new people, loving those socializing experiences. Um, and then having all that taken away from you over the last year by law, um, staying indoors, you know, at first that would have been very challenging, which it was for me, speaking from experience. But after a while, with your brain being plastic, you become your environment. So, you know, I have naturally noticed that I have become more introverted. And FYI, me talking to you face to face here, it's not face to face. Like scientifically speaking, I'm speaking to my computer screen and my brain literally knows that. So me talking to you is a social experience. Again, my brain being plastic, I've done way more Zoom calls and, and phone calls than I have done in the you know, before in my life, it's become comfortable with that. If I was to meet you in the flesh and we were literally in a pub having this conversation right now, we would both be noticing more fatigue because there's more noise around us in general. Literally our our energy <laughs> emitting from our, our bodies, our physical bodies, even a sense of touch, right? So there's, uh, you know, you know, a handshake. Well, we would probably wouldn't handshake given it's uh, COVID, but you get my point. Any sense of touch, any sense of being around in physical, uh, real world surroundings would actually be quite affronting to both of us. Um, and there is a huge aspect of needing to take this stuff slowly, but surely. Um, and my most real world experience of this was just in the summer. I went to Portugal to work for a month because um, I had lighter lockdown um, measures and you know, I went for dinner and there were sort of 10 people there. And within an hour, I was just so exhausted. I hadn't been around 10 people for months and I basically needed to call an early night. It's so unme, but it took about a week for me to be comfortable being around people. And I noted like, this is a marked personality change. This isn't just like a one night, maybe I slept badly last night or whatever. I was like, this is like personality shift. I'm having to relearn how to be around people how interesting is that? And, it, you know, I've spoken to psychologists about it since and what I experienced is completely normal. Um, so if you haven't had the opportunity to be around people, your colleagues, whatever it is, uh, go easy on yourself and them. The good news is ruling it together. So actually they'll be experiencing the same thing too, as long as they've been <laughs> paying attention to lockdown. Um, and yeah, it's a real it's a real shift, and it's going to take a few a, a good few encounters. It doesn't just happen overnight before that 
Yeah, it's good. And, you know, it's interesting, again, talking about anxiety, there's anxiety going back to work and then there's sort of the anxiety of being in work and then sort of, you know, the self-inquiry of why am I feeling like this? Should I still be feeling like this? When is this going to change? When am I going to start feeling myself again? Um, and that is something that at least everyone is likely to go through, but it is fascinating feeling it as someone who sees himself as, you know, Mm. extroverted and confident because you know even more difficult if you didn't beforehand more of my discussion with dan murray serta after this i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now back to my discussion with Dan Murray Serta. So you, you mentioned that you're you've set up your firm. You're going to be remote. Just as we're sort of wrapping things up, what 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 is your feeling for the rest of the year when it comes to other businesses? Dan? Mm, so well, when I uh, host Secret Leaders, which is ultimately interviewing entrepreneurs, um, I get good insight into what's going on there, and it is really fascinating. You know, I, I actually had to catch up with the founder of Slack recently because he's been on my podcast a couple of times. You know. A great example, great meta example. And, you know, his whole thing was like, look, Slack, we actually set up remotely. Um, you know, one of them was in Canada, one of them was in England, one of them was in America. So they actually set that company up completely remotely using Slack, unsurprisingly, um, which was just for them at the time. And then they evolved into all being in an office in San Francisco with locations around the world. And now they're very much moving into a, a mixed culture, but certainly like remote first so that they can, you know, enjoy some of the benefits of that. And I think it's been really interesting to speak to them because so many companies are using Slack to understand, you know, where they are in the office. Like, are they in an office or are they in a mixed environment? Mm. I think where people are going to end up, if I'm honest, is, is this mixed approach. Um, um, you know, you can't say like too much of a hard and fast rule and it'll be different for different companies at different sizes too. But, you know, most startups, and I say startups like, you know, we'll call it SMEs under 250 people. Um, you know, one of the major costs that you have is actually an office space. Um, if what you're trying to achieve with the office space is culture, then, and I'll only, I'll give you my personal point of view. We haven't said the right, that budget, forget about it, whatever. We're like, awesome, that budget, let's take everyone to an amazing team retreat. Like I said, I've failed three times so far, but I maintain it's going to happen. So I'm like, you know, rather than spending 10 grand, 20 grand, whatever it is on office space, I'll spend that on the team and make sure that when we go away, we go go away for a strategy week and we can do that, you know, every eight weeks or something and spend real time together having an amazing time and then let people go back to their usual flow. So I think, you know, there is a benefit as well to the economy and some other areas that aren't just office space, right. That are actually going to be experiencing new income streams. And I think that there is a lot of that, um, opportunity to explore and how to bring teams together, not necessarily in offices, but like a whole new business area to explode. Cause that's going to be super valuable. If you care about culture, you do still care about meeting your team mm. one way or another. Absolutely. I think that's going to be massive opportunity for people to actually make their culture feel far more energized than it probably honestly was in the past. 
Well, before we go, what would you prefer? Because obviously you, you've had big experience working in a big public company too. So what do you, what do you see? I, I, I think you can't underestimate the importance of people being together. I think we can romanticise what, when we were together, looked like. There were whole days where people would either be at their desk dealing with email, that there was no one around them because, you know, the person opposite was on holiday, the person next to them was in a stress hole. Um, you know, we, we romanticise what the office was like. I, I always think if we if we were to send people the closed-circuit TV cameras of what actually happened in their office last January, January 2020, it would sort of help demystify this idea that our offices were like the Rio Carnival, but with occasional sitting down doing emails. You know, we've, we've got this idea that the, the our offices were this jamboree of of innovation and ideas. And they, they often weren't. They were often, you know, you, you were hiding in meeting rooms to try and get something done. You were um, you were in a meeting that felt never-ending, but you could sort of drift in and out. You And I think something that's a, a bit more intentional, a bit more honest, the way you're describing it, that, you know, getting people together to try and capture some of that connection, that ideas, but then let people get on with their work. I think that's more sustainable. I'm just interested how it's going to look. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways that work configured at the moment where season tickets can justify and make the expense of you making a, a journey from Brighton to London every day. But if you're paying one-off tickets, all of a sudden that starts looking quite expensive. And so, you know, people who are in Brighton might say, I'll work one day a week in the office, not five days a week in the office. So I think, you know, we've not finished having the discussion yet. But what I have witnessed is I was chatting to, you know, I've, I've chatted to sort of a lot of technology-focused firms who are, you know, either looking at this innovatively or being a bit more flexible. But in the last couple of weeks, I've chatted to a few firms who are, who have, like a lot of companies, over the last few years, managed for cost. And they've immediately identified that irrespective of whether middle and senior management want people in every day, um, the cost saving for them scaling the office down is considerable. And so mm. it's a really interesting one. It's an intersection of there are a lot of managers who've got this heuristic that they want their team around them. But then there's a lot of chief chief operating officers, CFOs, who are saying, you know what, we could half our half our fixed costs here you know, non, non labor fixed costs here, um, and would be, would be remiss not to consider it. So there's a lot of factors going on there. To me, it's companies like your own who are saying, let's start with the culture. Let's work out how to get the best culture and then let's build everything from there. I think they're going to be far more robust than the ones who say, well, let's start with the cost base let's shrink the cost base back, then how can we we run this effectively? So, you know, I to, to the point that you made just before, I think there's huge opportunities for people who want to create differentiated cultures, want to create energized cultures. There's huge opportunities for people to set up firms to help facilitate that. Massive opportunity right now. Yeah, I think, you know, on reflection, just listening to you speak as well, it's so interesting. Yeah, at the time of launching Heights, I was like, God, this is literally the worst time ever, 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 ever to launch a company. You know, I needed to raise money. I couldn't meet investors face to face. It took a long time for people to be comfortable giving someone money over Zoom, right? So <laughs> it was all this stuff and I was very frustrated. But actually, on reflection, possibly the best time because, you know, it's a signal of mm. what people are adapting to in what we call the new world or the new normal. And I've had the benefit of having to set up a company with that uncertainty in mind. So the culture from the ground up has been designed like that because there's been no choice. Yeah, I think it creates a great a great opportunity to at least um, not have to retrofit something, right? It all feels very organically natural because it's how it happens. So I think that's it. I mean, I'd love, love to hear stories of people on your show, in fact, of people that are having to shift their culture entirely based on this new way of working. Because, you know, again, so lucky having like a single culture that's just worked throughout this uh, pandemic, but not everyone's been that lucky. No, absolutely. 
Dan, thank you very much. So uh, we've only got about a, a tiny second left, but Secret Leaders is your is your main passion project. But you've got another podcast as well. Just give us a quick shout out for that. Yeah, sure. The Brain Care Podcast. So every episode is just 15 minutes and all about how to take care of your brain with a different academic or scientific or wellness leader um, on a single topic. So uh, I'm, very, I'm very lucky to host two podcasts and get great enjoyment learning out of both of those. There you go. There's, there's the benefit of running your business remotely you're saving on that commute time to get your podcasts done and studio cost <laughs> yeah exactly exactly thank dan thank you so much uh lovely to chat to you best of luck with the 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 next stage of your business and the podcast as well thank you so much bruce it's been a pleasure mate thank you to dan thank you to callum uh slightly different episode format today i wanted to to just feature some of the things that were going on and get other people's perspectives i think you know right now it's a critical time for hearing what other people are saying and thinking. So more than anything, I've, I sort of really welcome the opportunity to get other people's perspectives. If you're interested in that, if you're interested in anything that we talked about, you'll find it all in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. In a couple of weeks, I've got a fabulous guest uh, coming up. And uh, so look out for that one. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.